Hello and welcome to the General Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Gorelick. No idea is too controversial, no discussion is too off-limits. Join me as I discuss some of the most contentious social and scientific topics with leading scholars, scientists, and thinkers. I am pleased to introduce today's guest, uh, Mr. Dave Pounder. Uh, it's a delight for me. I've uh, been friends with, with Dave for a while. Um, Dave is an esteemed pornographer. Uh, he has produced, directed, and performed in adult films for over a decade with over 100 titles to his credit. He holds a bachelor's degree in finance from Michigan State University and a master's degree in information management from Arizona State University. He has studied media economics and human sexuality at Indiana University and was accepted into the doctoral program at Concordia University in Montreal to study the mainstream consumption of pornography under the tutelage of evolutionary psychologist Dr. Gad Saad. Uh, Pounder has lectured on the topic of adult entertainment at several policy and academic institutions, including Indiana University, UCLA, and Emory University. He lives in Boca Raton, Florida. Thank you for joining us, Dave. How have you been? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me. Am I the first guest? Uh, no, unfortunately, you're not. But you're <laughs> the you're the second guest. All right. So uh, Number two congratulations. Still good. <laughs> congratulations on being second best. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Oh, I kid, I kid. Um, so why don't you just uh, start off? I know I, I uh, did a brief mention of your bio, but why don't you just uh, tell us your story from from your own uh, mouth, from the horse's mouth? My story? I don't know, man. There's a lot to say. I mean, I, I was born in London and uh, grew up in the U.S. And, uh, you know, my mom's French and thought if she sent me to the public schools that I would get involved in drugs and have sex with all these girls, <laughs> which didn't happen because I was at the, at the private all-boys school. And uh, when I went to college, I met my first girlfriend, Leslie, and we dated basically from orientation all the way through uh, two years beyond when I was working for General Electric. And I, uh, you know, realized that, you know, she was obviously the only girl I had had sex with. And I'm like, this kind of sucks. I mean, she was awesome. The relationship was great. And I thought, well, I want to have sex with other girls. And I know Leslie's not going to go for that. So I'm like, I either cheat on her, which I thought was unethical, or I just break up with her. But there's nothing wrong with the relationship. So I opted to break up with her when I went to grad school, and uh, then I just started hooking up with these other girls, you know, like at bars and just, you know, wherever, and I noticed all the girls seemed to sort of universally want relationships and commitment and resource investment and these things, and all my guy friends are trying to get laid, and I'm like, this is really interesting, you know, because I didn't really know much about psychology at the time, so I started reading up on, all, you know, social psychology, personality psychology, uh, things along those lines. And then I came across a book by John Townsend at Syracuse University called What Women Want, What Men Want, Why the Two Sexes Still See Love and Commitment So Differently. And that book was like, hit the nail right on the head for everything I had ever observed in terms of how men and women uh, interacted. And actually, when I wrote my own book, Obscene Thoughts, um, I asked him to write the foreword and he agreed. And uh, I really think that's the most sort of comprehensive, you know, real real world uh you know analysis if you will of what really happens with men and women in dating aside from all the social bullshit that people put out there to sort of make everybody feel better you know yeah so uh, after reading your book which i, I finally got around to doing oh, it nice. uh i know you, you've been you've been hounding me uh <laughs> but uh i guess it, it, it came to a head with this uh podcast that uh, you know uh we're doing now um, but, you know, one of the things that I appreciate is that you do kind of look at the reality of human sexual relationships um, without the, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the gauze that, that 
is palatable or politically correct. Right. Um, and you obviously, you know, you know your evolutionary psychology. Uh, I'm, uh, I know you wrote the book prior to actually taking an evolutionary psych course with, with me. Um, but it was still, it was, it was spot on. I mean, obviously, you know, there were, there were times when I was a little, uh, you know, kind of, I, I, no book is perfect, but for the most part, um, I, I definitely, uh, think that you're on the money and your unique experience, uh, in pornography, which I hope you'll get to, uh, I think puts you in a unique, uh, ability to, to explain and to have a perspective, uh, on these sexuality issues. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your, uh, uh, experiences in, in porn? No, not really. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, porn was great, man. I mean, like, you know, I was, uh, when I was in grad school, uh, well, first of all, so going back to the story I was telling earlier, so I'd go out to these bars and clubs and hook up with these girls, and I realized that, like, they were getting hurt, you know? Like, I'm like, well, this sucks. We both had sex. She was, you know, willing. We were happy. Everything was great. And then when I moved on to the next, you know, I'd see her later on around campus or something, and she would be upset. Why didn't you call me? She just seemed hurt. And I'm like, well, this sucks. I don't want to hurt anybody. I mean, it's literally like, you know, you got to eat, so you go to the restaurant. You know, I go to, like, Applebee's because I'm hungry. And then I leave. I think everything's fine. I come back a month later, and the restaurant manager's crying. I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, did you not like the hamburger? I'm like, no, it's great. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. So, you know, I discovered the swingers world. And I'm like, this is great. So, like, every week I would go to the swingers club in Phoenix because I went to grad school at Arizona State. And uh, where, like, Doug Kenroy and all those guys are. And, uh, you know, um, I found, and I, I could have sex with these wives while the husbands watched or sort of participated in a threesome, all you know, straight activity. But I'm like, this is awesome. I'm like, everybody's happy. You know, the wife was happy that she. It's not that she was happy that she was having sex with me. She was happy that her husband was happy watching her have sex with me. She was happy to be pleasing her husband because it was usually the husband that you know kind of put her up to it, so to speak. But she was still happy because you know women tend to be pleasers, especially to the men that they love. The guy was happy because he was watching his wife have sex, which is what he liked. And uh, I was happy because I was getting laid. And I was really happy that nobody cared if I didn't call them. If I saw them three months later at the club, it was all good. We'd hook up again, you know. And I thought this was like a freak thing <coughs> in Arizona. So when I got job offers at like Wachovia Bank and <laughs> all these other places, I had one in Arizona, which I didn't like as much as the Wachovia offer. But I ended up telling the guys, I'm like, you know, I got this Wachovia offer in you know Los Angeles. And... Uh, you know, I kind of want to take this other one because I don't want to leave this club. He's like, dude, this is like all over the world. I'm like, it is? <laughs> He's like, it's bigger in L.A. I'm like, it is? And then he gave me the name of a club there um, that I went to. And then I just started meeting other people in other clubs. And then I met, a, you know, the porn industry is in L.A. And I met a guy who was affiliated with a porn industry. He was like a scout. And he was finding extras to play husbands in this porn series called Screw My Wife. So he's like, hey, I think you'd be good. You want to be a husband? I'm like, sure, why not? So I showed up. And the girl asked the director, can I have sex with this guy too? And I'm like, absolutely. And the director's like, do you have a test? I'm like, what's a test? He's like, well, to be on film, you have to have a test. I'm like, oh, this sucks. I got this hot, like, 19-year-old girl that wants to have sex with me, and I can't do it for free, right? So I start networking on set, and I get all this contact information. I call the agents that they mentioned, and I just call them up and said, hey, this guy wants to shoot me in a movie. I totally made it up. He didn't ever say he wanted to shoot me in a movie, but I just said he did. <laughs> and they had me come down. They took some photos, and... uh from there, I got into the porn industry, and it was great. I mean, I was getting paid to have sex with hot girls, and I was also making a political social statement in the sense that, you know, I'm this guy with this perfectly clean background. I'm well-educated. I have no criminal background. I have perfect credit. I'm a property owner. You know, everything that you would socially deem, you know, good in a person, 
um, I did, and I and I wore porn on my sleeve. I'm like, it's great. This is awesome. <laughs> you know, what? Hello. Yeah. Can you hear me? Dave. Yeah. Can you hear me? Shit. Uh, I'm here. Uh. I'm, I hear you. Okay. No, I, I, I gave out the audio gave out for for, oh, for a second okay. there, and I and I cussed. Um. Oh no worries. That's what editing software is for. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, so yeah, so the point was great because I could be, you know, I could get paid to have sex with hot girls and, um, I didn't have to wake up early in the morning. I could wear shorts and sandals and, uh, it paid really well. And, uh, you know, eventually I just realized the directors made more than the talent. So I started directing and then I realized the producers made more than the directors. So I started producing and then I just started consulting and now I'm out of the business completely. Just, there's just no more money in it. Um, it's really a commodity now, but I have nothing but good things to say about porn. I right. think porn is great. I, I don't think women typically benefit from it. Like if a girl said to me, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing porn," it's eh, you know, I'd probably think twice. You know, usually the outcome for girls isn't all that great. But by all means, if they want to do it, I'm I'm a libertarian in my sort of political ideology, and whatever people want to do. If some girl wants some guy to give her a hundred dollars for a blowjob, to me, there's no reason that transaction can't occur if it's completely non-coercive. Yeah, and I think um, you know when you have an uber libertarian view, you can't say that one type of transaction uh, is is any less you know palatable than the other transaction. I mean, it could be less palatable, but you can't say that legally there should be anything wrong with it uh, just because you know you find it icky or or, or you know upsetting in, in some way. If it's between two two people, um, you know, you know why not? Um, and I think we're both on the same page. Uh, I did I did read about your description of kind of what happens uh, to women who who do do porn. So you know basically there's kind of a, a steep decline uh, because of you know age issues. So the older they get, the less profitable the roles are. Um, the you know the more you know they they have to kind of up the ante and what they're willing to do. Um, and I appreciate that you were honest about it. I mean being you know yourself a porn producer and porn director. Um, how do you, um, you know, how would you kind of navigate those issues? I mean, obviously there are some ethical issues involved and you, you know, just, I've known you for a while and you seem like a, like a good guy. You are a good guy, you know, as far as I know, I don't know what skeletons you have in your closet. Um, but, but how did you, like when you had girls who, um, you know, approached you and, and, and wanted to do porn, like, how did you navigate those ethical issues? Like, were you honest with them and, and telling them, hey, you know, um, I can shoot you, but, but you know, as in, you know, uh, shoot you on screen, um, but, you know, and just know that this is not a lifestyle. I mean, wh what did you say to them and, and how well, did you approach I mean, it? Typically, when I met the girl, she was already in the business because as the producer, I would call the agent. You know, I go to an agent, like I need to shoot a scene, right? I need, okay, let's say I need a young girl, an old girl or whatever. I would go to the agent's website and see who the girls are. So th these girls that I was using uh, were already in the business. Now, on the rare occasion, I mean, I was in porn for over 10 years, you know, some random girl said she wanted to do porn or she asked for advice. I would usually tell her not to do it. I'd say, you know, because it usually doesn't work out well for the girls just because it's not in their evolutionary interest to just go around and have sex with a bunch of random men. Right. Uh, you know, in in the outcomes usually aren't all that great. But I said, you know, if you're gonna do it, do it as found money. Don't rely on it. Don't make it a career. Just you know, do a scene and buy a couch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Do a scene, right. But, you know, but still go to school and still keep your job at Starbucks, even if you're making eight dollars an hour, because that's reliable and that's not gonna mess with you. Um, 
emotionally. Now, by all means, if you're a girl that can just have random sex with everybody, then great. But I, I haven't found that to be the case. And, and every girl, pretty much, that I met in porn uh, has a history of sexual abuse. And it's funny because a lot of girls get pissed off when I say that. Like, I was talking, uh, you know, I was thinking about moving to Australia. And I still am. And I was on some, you know, blogs just talking about uh, sexuality. And in Australia, you know, prostitution is legal and regulated in every territory. I shouldn't say that. It's decriminalized in every territory. Some of them have legal regulated brothels, others. But there's no place in Australia where a girl can't just post an ad on Craigslist, craigslist.au, <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know, be like, hey, I'll you know, blow jobs for $100 if she wants. And you know, I was telling, you know, we were, so we'd, we'd have these in-depth discussions on blogs about sexuality and porn. And when I would make the comment that everybody in the adult film industry, at least here in the U.S., the females, in my experience, 10 years of experience, had, you know, a consistent um, history of sexual abuse. These girls get, like, really upset about it, say, that's a myth. We're trying to break that myth. And I'm like, well, listen, maybe it's a myth. I don't know. I'm just telling you what my experience is. Yeah. You know, and, that's, and, and they get upset. And I'm like, look, I'm not saying maybe that's the case. I'm just telling you from my experience, even when I was in porn, I'd, I'd meet a girl who was seemingly normal. Um, I would find out later that, you know, she was, you know, raped when she was 17 or 16. I remember Belle Knox, the girl from Duke, uh, when, when it was discovered, you know, she, she was a really bright girl going to Duke and, and was doing porn to pay her tuition instead of taking loans, which makes perfect sense to me from an economics perspective. You know, she says initially when she was first discovered, oh, I've never been raped. There's no sexual abuse. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, that's total bullshit. You know, I'm like, that, that's crap. I mean, if so, she's the first. And then literally like months later, then she revealed that when she was in high school, she was, you know, raped by some guy or something. Mm -hmm. So then I'm like, ah, there it is. Like I knew, I mean, it's, it's so, so pervasive to me having been in porn for so long that that's the case. Now it doesn't make it necessarily bad. I mean, I talk about that in my book. Like if you show me a horse that's being ridden by a person, I'm going to say at some point that horse was broken by a cowboy. Now, if the horses all get mad and go, that's just a myth, you know, some horses like to be ridden. I'm like, dude, if there's a wild horse, every wild horse I've seen, the minute a human gets on it, it tries to buck it off, and it doesn't submit until it's been broken by a cowboy. Mm. And that's just been my experience. I mean, maybe there is a horse somewhere that you just jump on, and he's cool with it. But, you know, and, and most of these horse owners will say, no, the horse loves being ridden if he didn't see me. But And that might be the case. And I don't deny that. I don't deny that the person who loves their horse thinks the horse loves riding it. It probably does. And maybe there is some girl who loves porn, and that's great. I mean, I'm sure there are, but it doesn't change the fact that the horse that loves ridden, loves being ridden, at some point was broken by a cowboy, and the girl who loves doing gangbangs every Friday night at some point was raped by someone. And I know it's people don't like to talk about it, but that's unfortunately what I've experienced. Um, and I have a lot of, uh, a very high sample size, if you will. Yeah, uh, and I don't want you to hold back. I think you know part of what I want to discuss on this podcast is you know these t taboo subjects, and I don't want you know um, us to be filtered by propriety or what you know society deems acceptable or political correctness or and and, and all the uh, guises that it takes. Um, I do want to kind of delve into this a little bit. So um, you're saying that this happened to a T, like there were no exceptions. You've never met a girl who. Came from a normal background. She was, you know, she she never had a, a, abuse, uh, you know, abuse issues. Um, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I talk I talk about it in my book. There, there's two different types of um, porn people. Basically, there's the people who were sexually abused, which could have happened just once. They were raped or molested by, you know, an uncle or brother or whatever, just once. And then there's also, and, and they're doing it really for catharsis to try to recreate the experience, to learn from it, to master it. That's where they feel comfortable because it is, they associated it, you know, 
typically at a younger age. Um, the other group is what I would call sustained emotional abuse. So somebody can't just say you're ugly once and all of a sudden they run off and do porn. But you have to be like, you're fat, you're fat, over and over and over again for years and just really eating away at her self-esteem. And it can't be something to do with something non-physical. It can't be you're stupid or you're an idiot. I mean, that, that doesn't, it has to be to her physical characteristics. Who would date you with that nose? You're so fat, you're ugly. You know, nobody wants to have sex with you. And, you know, they kill their self-esteem so much that it ends up putting them in the vicious cycle where they go out, they have sex with a guy, and, and that validates to them their attractiveness. And they say, wow, you know, mm. this guy finds me attractive. He's having sex with me. And then obviously because the girl, what, what they were saying is probably true to some degree that maybe she's overweight or whatever, but the guy just saw that as a low investment, you know, copulation opportunity. So he leaves, then she feels bad, and then she goes out and does it again you know, to feel good about herself. So, or especially in porn, you know, they're photographing you and they're making you feel beautiful and you're so awesome, blah, blah, blah. And it makes, it really boosts a girl's self-esteem uh, in the short run until she realizes years later, oftentimes, well, this doesn't really make me feel good. It doesn't resonate with them, um, you know, in their in their primal mind, if you will. And mo most girls I know regret doing porn or, um, you know, they'll say when they're in porn, they say, oh, I love it, it's the best, blah, blah, blah. And then once they're out, and they don't have to say that anymore. Typically, you know, like, you know how I said I love porn. I have nothing bad to say about it as a guy. Right. It's very rare that you'll see a girl who who left porn is no longer in the industry, found another job, and said it was great. <laughs> you know, I would do it yeah. again. Blah blah blah. I mean, I haven't found that yet. I mean, maybe maybe it's the case. But you know, you're seeing some, you know, more uh, well-educated porn people like Bell Knox and Tasha Rain went to UCLA. There was a girl I forget her name from the University of Florida. I mean, these are good universities. You know, it's not like these people are going to, you know, some community college in Tennessee, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, so, so yeah, unfortunately. But, again, I don't think it necessarily makes it bad. I mean, like, these things are, are part of, of life. I mean, if, if, if you're a war veteran, right, you got to go to Iraq and, and fight or Afghanistan, and you see all your friends get blown up in a roadside bomb, that's going to affect you. And you might come home and start doing crazy shit. Right. You right. Know? Well, 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 I'm not I'm – not you know, judging yeah. people for doing porn. Uh, that's no, not, no, that's not no, the point. No, I know, but what I'm yeah. saying is, is a lot of people say, it's almost like, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, oh, the rape, or you're taking advantage of the people that were raped. And that's not really the case. I mean, you know, porn, porn is like a, I use the analogy of prison. You know, prison doesn't create criminals. Criminals end up in prison. So porn doesn't like, you know, fuck people up. Fucked up people come to porn, you know, in that sense. That would, and I'm just saying fucked up in a sense of like, you know, sexually promiscuous no, no, people. No, no. Right, right. But right. it's, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, in the same way that you wouldn't, ex you know, think about porn as being like professional sex athletes, right? And in the same way that you wouldn't expect, and I talk about this in my book as well, Tiger Woods to just show up on the PGA Tour without having ever played golf before. I would equally say you wouldn't see a 23 year old given blowjobs left and right if she hadn't done that at a younger age or been exposed to that. Okay. You know, okay. The old legend of Tiger Woods is his dad put a golf club in his hand when he was like nine. Right. In my book, I joke and say, you know, the old legend of Jenna Jameson is somebody put a penis in her hand when she was nine and now she's in professional porn. And if it was reversed, maybe Natalie Gulbis, an, an attractive golfer, maybe if she was molested when she was younger, she would be, you know, winning AVN awards and Jenna Jameson would be on the women's PGA tour. You know, so it, it's just... It's all a product of people's past, I think. Okay. Well, um, I th I do want to discuss kind of the ideology of what makes someone prone to to star in adult films, uh, and I I have you know somewhat of an argument to make, but but I guess 
Um, prior to that, uh, I, I do want to discuss this this kind of you know thing that you just just talked about about you know having practice beforehand. I mean, practice doesn't have to be abusive. You're specifically saying that most of these girls, most of these women, have a history of abusive sexual relationships. It's not that you know they just were promiscuous and started having sex with their boyfriends at age 12. Correct. Um, okay, so it, it's, it's the abusive factor that, that is correlated with, with propensity to, to, to star in, in pornography, for a woman at least, yes. not for men. Yeah, and just to, just to be clear too, you know, you know the old logic phrase that, you know, all Labrador retrievers are dogs, but not all dogs are Labrador retrievers, right? So I would say that all women in porn come from some history of sexual or emotional abuse, but I'm not arguing that every woman who's been sexually or emotionally abused ends up in porn. So, you know, they could be, right, right, I'm right, just saying, right. you know, if, if 100 girls, you know, are abused, you know, may, they're all going to act out sexually or completely shut down sexually, but I would say, you know, it's some subsection of that population that ends up going into sex work more generally. Okay. Well, um, so now I want to kind of get to the ideology, just based on your, I, I don't expect us to kind of resolve this, um, but I had... My first guest, uh, Brian Bootwell, who is a behavior geneticist, he's a criminologist, and his approach to understanding issues such as violence and and um, other behaviors is is basically genetically oriented or, or genetically centered. So, for example, um, criminologists have found that things like abuse during childhood is correlated with later criminal behavior. Okay, but then. Brian uh, came came along and he he has done a bunch of studies with collaborators and whatnot and he showed that you when you parse the genetic effects out um, the actual experience of the abuse doesn't really explain the the behavior so basically when you control for genetics the abuse itself might have minimal to not to no effects so could could a similar thing be happening here so is it possible that these women perhaps um, you know were Either you know predisposed genetically, or you know in terms of other kind of developmental um, uh, pathway-related way uh, to you know engage in, in in promiscuous sexual behaviors, and so that predisposition is is correlated both with a history of abuse. So you know, presuming it's her family that is um, you know uh, abusive. So so say her dad was the one. Who was the 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 the, the per perpetrator of, of the abuse on her? Um, you know, she inherited his genes, and so it's the genes that could be both correlated with you know promiscuity, high you know socio-sexual behavior, uh, as well as the abusive uh, factors that she experienced. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not a geneticist, so I don't I really comment on that. But I'll, right, I'll tell right. you my general my general thought. So first of all, with genetics, <clears throat> genetics plays a, a huge role, obviously, in, in elements like happiness. All the happiness research shows that about half of your happiness comes from just your genetic disposition. Another half is from your environment. Even when they talk about sexuality more generally, homosexuality, bisexuality, etc., they say there's a component of it that's genetic. There's a component of it that's social. Um, you know, I don't know. What I, what I can say is that if that were the case, um, you know, you wouldn't find that virtually every single girl in porn had the sexual abuse. Because let's say there's a girl who has this genetic trait that makes her predisposed to casual sex, right? So let's, yeah. so let's just say the, the abuse didn't happen. So she wasn't molested by her brother or her neighbor or her uncle. Um, you would expect then to find women in porn who didn't have that. I'd say, oh, no, here's a girl. She's in porn, and she didn't have that. 
and it's genetics right. that's causing her to be here. So when I look at it from a statistic, I used to build risk models when I worked at Wachovia, and what we would do is we would look at you know loan default, and we'd look at all the ap application data, the FICO score, the credit score, the age, years of employment, years at the, years at the same house, and we would try to predict and create a, what they call a custom model to, to predict the likelihood of a default on an auto loan. And you can kind of do the same thing here in terms of predicting who's going to go into porn. Typically, younger girls go into porn. Uh, typically, girls with with uh, you know the need for immediate resources go into porn. And, and the other variable that I would say would enter that model anecdotally would be um, some kind of history of sexual or emotional abuse. Um, now, you know, so so to me, <clears throat> unless you want to argue, which is really you know out there to say, well, um, you know, the genes, uh, this genetics that they inherit you know, uh, make girls act in a way that invites sexual abuse. So so the, the perpetrators target them based on the way they're acting, kind of like this ovulation stuff. When women are ovulating, they're more likely to show skin. They're more likely to spend money on makeup, et cetera. They don't even, they're not even conscious of this. And then as a result, men are, you know, flirting with them as a result of these very subtle behaviors. So that could be, to your point, or to, I guess, uh, Bootwell's point, is that could theoretically be possible. So she's got these genes that's causing her to, display sexuality and submissiveness, which then attracts perpetrators who then molest her, and then she ends up in porn. So it's kind of like a second derivative um, of getting into the porn industry. But, you know, I would still say that if that girl had the genes, there might still be a submissive girl who gives those signals and doesn't end up in porn. So I would still say that, that, the, that the higher likely causal variable of prediction of whether someone enters porn from a female perspective would be the actual abuse itself, because otherwise you would see girls who weren't abused that just right. happened to have the gene. Yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely see how an argument could be made, um, and you know, we're definitely walking on eggshells here because you know it, it is highly controversial to say that me, you know, maybe some women, I don't want to say court abuse, um, but you know, there are, aren't there patterns among some 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 women and I'm sure some men too of of being in relationships that are abusive. I mean, so you know, you have the 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 stereotypical woman whose uh, you know boyfriends and husbands were were just basically you know treating her like shit all the time. Um, and you know, obviously we're not excusing this. So I think if you know if our listeners are are listening to what we're saying, you know, this is not something that that we condone. But you know, at the same time, you know, some people are more prone to um, to experiencing violence than others. So, for example, some people are more prone to having accidents. Some, so, so, for example, the, the classic studies on, on IQ and propensity to, to, to basically be hurt or even killed uh, by negligence or accidents. Um, so, I'm here. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, in, that, in a similar way, you know, are there, you know, could there be a case made um, – in that in that area, and I'm not I'm not you know I know that you know neither of us are, are genetics experts, but right. well, I mean you know there there is research that shows that you know women who grow up in abusive or you know chaotic households tend to seek out men who are equally chaotic or crazy. So if you have like an alcoholic father, the woman is more likely to date an alcoholic or abusive boyfriend and things along those lines. So there is that um, you know sort of experience um, that could cause women to seek that out. And you're asking, and what? So I, I agree with that, but what, what's the question specifically? Uh, well, maybe it's not it's not really a question, but I guess it's it's kind of, you know, not it's my you know attempt to not 
close the door completely on the kind of the the predisposition hypothesis. Um, but well, let's just leave that aside. Um, do you think that there might be more variety now or variation in the uh, porn population, uh, specifically in, in women who do porn? Um, you know, for women who might not have this history of abuse because of all of, of, of these, you know, amateur uh, videos that people can upload on their own. So, you know, if I'm a woman and I want to just, you know, pay my way through college, well, I can just, you know, put out some videos of myself doing stuff online. I don't have to go through a producer. I don't have to go through, uh, you know, any, any you know, uh, porn company or whatever. Right. Well, actually, uh, what you're making me think of, it, which, is a, which is a good distinction to make, is the distinction between women who do porn and women who swing. Um, and the difference is when you're a wife in the lifestyle who's going to different parties and having sex with various men while the husband watches, those women I found do not have a history of sexual abuse. Or, or if they do, I mean, it's you know, it's it's not decisive. It's not that it's just this common. It's, it's like what you would say earlier. Like, oh, I found some that have been and some that have not been. And the women that are that are swinging are doing it to please their boyfriends. They re- they love their boyfriends. They realize their boyfriend makes them happy. And and the big difference between porn and between swinging is that the couple selects the guy. The couple says, the wife says, hey, I kind of like this guy. The husband screens the profile. <clears throat> they meet him at a bar. They talk. Everything seems cool. No creepy vibe. They go back to the house. They mess around. They have fun. Okay. With porn, you don't choose who you're working with. I mean, you can say, I'm not going to do the scene. No one's forcing you to do anything. But the bottom line is, you need the money. I mean, if you're a plumber and you work for a plumbing company, and they say, hey, clean out this septic sewer place, you could say, I don't want to do that and quit. But most don't because they need the money. So they they walk through the sewer and the sludge and smell the poo to, to do their job and hope the next one is just fixing a faucet, you know. But it yeah. goes with the territory. So with the porn, you know, the girl shows up and says, this is who you're working with. So you're a 19-year-old girl and you have to have sex with a 65-year-old grandpa for the hornygrandpas.com site. And you would have never otherwise selected that guy on your own compared to the woman who's, say, 40 years old dating her boyfriend saying, hey, I think it'd be really high. Have you ever hooked up with, like, you know, a, a younger 25-year-old college dude? And she says, oh, that would be hot. And, you know, they, they fantasize about it together, and it's fun, and she's done, and she's happy. And it, it's it, it's not, you know, derivatively coercive in the sense that work, I think all work is really, you know, exchange of resources for labor. Nobody would, would go to their job as a construction worker and build houses if they weren't being paid for it. And these girls aren't giving blowjobs and having sex with men if they weren't paid extremely well for it. And, right. you know, I've talked to girls many times. I said, listen, what if Starbucks paid the same amount of money as porn? You could do porn and make $1,000 a scene, or you could pour coffee all day and make $1,000 a day. And they all said coffee, every single one. And when I flipped it up and asked the guys, would you rather do this? Every guy said, I'd rather do porn. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. And, and I yeah. joke and say the only reason they pay guys to do porn is so they're available. Otherwise, they'd have to get a job somewhere, and they wouldn't be available. So that's the only reason guys are actually paid right. for porn. And I think that says a lot about the evolutionary differences, universal differences, between men and women, and and as much, and you know, the other thing I noticed too is, is a lot of women try to like sell monogamy to men. Oh, it's so great! You have this connection with a girl. My husband is so happy. Isn't this great that we're monogamous? And the husbands are kind of like, well, this kind of sucks, you know. And I, and I think I've asked other people, you know, that are in supposedly happy monogamous relationships, and I asked them, and I said, hey, you know, if your wife didn't care, she just could give a rat's ass. It's no different from you just going to Target versus Walmart. If you banged other girls, would you do it? And they're all like, absolutely. There's like, there's like no question. And in what I've noticed is where the women sell monogamy, in swinging, the men sell promiscuity. Isn't this great, honey? We get to meet all these people. We get to interact. We have sex with all these people. And the women are like, 
thinking of those balls. Uh, not really. I'd rather just kind of be with you. So I, I think instead of each gender trying to sell their preferred evolved mating strategy to the other, which kind of goes against their sexual psychology, it's better just to acknowledge the differences and then to try to develop a relationship in a way that benefits both partners. So here's what I mean by that. So for example, if I meet a girl and I say, come with me to the swingers club and every week we're going to meet a different couple. She's having sex with a different man every week. In order for me to have a different girl as a guy, because I value partner variety, there's a different guy for her. And that doesn't really make her happy. It's a new guy. Most women typically want the same guy, a similar guy, a familiar guy that knows her body. And you go to the monogamy people and the guy's like, this sucks. It's like having the same food every day. You're, whatever your favorite meal is, I'll marry chicken fettuccine Alfredo or the Louisiana chicken pasta from Cheesecake Factory. But after a week of eating that, it's still my favorite dish, but just give me some sushi or just something different, right? So I say, all right, well, men value sexual variety, low investments, copulations, et cetera. Women value connection. Sex is just an added component of the overall circle of the relationship. Um, you know, let the guy have an open relationship and do whatever he wants sexually. And let the, and the guy should let the girl have some very close male friends. She'd probably only have one or two at most. And she could see them on a regular basis and have sex with them as much as she wants. And, and establish that and be like, look, I know, you know, there's a, I forget it was David Buss. One of these guys said, you know, giving somebody a spoonful of sugar and telling them not to experience sweetness is impossible. But you can understand that tasting sugar and you can understand the science behind how the sweetness is experienced and you can make evolutionary things about, well, back in the day, people needed energy. They didn't know where the next meal would come from. So they're drawing the sugar and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's unrealistic to expect someone to be in an open relationship and not experience jealousy. You're going to experience jealousy. So instead of people saying we're going to be monogamous and cheating and feeling like shit and feeling guilty, and instead of people being completely open and telling everybody about all the people you're having sex with, they're both bad. I mean, one, you feel guilty, the other, you feel jealousy. So to avoid the guilt, you have a conversation and say, listen, you know, monogamy isn't normal for guys, for humans. It would be the only social, you know, primate species that was uh, monogamous because, you know, gibbons aren't really social. They're more isolated. And, you know, everybody can win. You can say, listen, and I've said this to girls that I date. I'm like, listen, I'm not going to be monogamous, but I'll never tell you. I mean, you'll never find out. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll keep it all under the radar. And I'll say to her, and equally to you, I realize you don't want to have sex with everybody, but if you happen to reconnect with your ex-boyfriend, maybe there's a coworker you go to lunch with or a boss that you like, um, you know, some guy you think is on, hook up with them. I don't want to know about it. Don't come home and tell me. Don't feel obligated to tell me. Just know that if you do it, it's cool. And I find that that relationship structure seems to work the best. And the thing is, is no matter what it is, no matter what your dictated or stipulated relationship is, you're going to do what you're going to do anyways. I mean, I see guys all day long. They tell their girlfriends they're faithful and they're off cheating. You know, so it's, you know, you might as well just be honest about it. Yeah. Um, well, you definitely brought up a lot of topics. Um, and I think they're all interrelated in, in a lot of ways. So I do want to explore this kind of, you know, regulation of of relationships with respect to our evolutionary natures. Um, and you're absolutely right. People are um, jealous you know, when it comes to, to things like, you know, monogamy versus versus non-monogamy. Um, I, I kind of want to get back to your experience with this with the swingers, because, you know, as you pointed out, um, jealousy is, 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 is an evolved trait. It is, it is natural for us to be jealous of our partners and specifically men as, you know, 
uh, research by, by David Buss and others has shown, um, are more jealous of their partners having sex with someone else, of, of you know, specifically of, of their female partners having sex with someone else, whereas women are more jealous of their male partners being emotionally invested in someone else, giving gifts to, to their coworkers, you know, uh, talking about, um, you know, how, how, how much they love them, etc. So when it comes to, to these swinger parties, you mentioned that some of these guys get off on watching their wives, you know, have sex with other men, which seems to kind of go against this whole, um, you know, paternity certainty. So, you know, it, we evolved, men evolved to be wary of their partners straying because they could risk investing in children uh, who are not theirs, right? Sure. So, so that's a big risk. So, if, if I mean, obviously, you know, we're we're talking about. Uh, modern environments where you know people you know use use uh, you know contraceptives etc. Et but still, I mean, how how how? I mean, I, I can kind of guess what some of the answers. But in your opinion, what is it that uh, makes men kind of you know be excited about these kinds of uh, you know right. scenarios? This I guess it's called cuck, yeah, yeah, you know cuckoldry. Or, well, yeah. you put a couple of things on the table. So first, let me address your thing about the modern contraception. I mean, there's a reason. I mean, the whole point of evolutionary psychology is you're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years of evolution that occurs very slowly. So our minds haven't caught up with recent advances in technology. And the perfect example for that right. is that more kids die from falling in a swimming pool or an electrical socket every year than, than they do from a snake bite. But our minds have evolved to be – nobody jumps at an outlet or sees a pool and freaks right. out, but they freak out about a snake because we come from a long, unbroken chain of ancestors who successfully avoided snakes. And eventually, I'm sure pools and electrical sockets, you know, a million years from now, will probably enter into, into the psyche at some point. Now, with regard to swingers, I can tell you, at least the swingers that choose me to play with, is they are disproportionately uber-intelligent and uber-wealthy. And what I mean by uber wealthy is they have two $15 million houses on the ocean, a yacht, a private jet, etc. This is not uncommon. If I, go to, if I go to a swinger couple's house that's chosen me, I think is the way I word my profile. I come off as intelligent, etc. There's a Ferrari. There's a Lamborghini. There's a Bentley in the driveway. You know, they have a big house. They, 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 they're clearly doing very, very well. And usually what's correlated to that is a high degree of intelligence. So in the same way that to me, if I met a girl, I would say, listen, just like I said earlier, I want to have an open relationship, but it's not fair for me to not allow you to, so just don't tell me about it in this. And then you could say, well, you know, how is that within your uh, evolutionary interest, your paternity uncertainty? And the whole point of this, of these podcasts and, and learning about evolutionary psychology, especially in the domain of human mating, is so that we can try to circumvent that biology. So, for example, when I get on an airplane, I am freaked out. I'm like... This thing is like a gazillion pounds. It's in the air. It's held up by these two engines. This just shouldn't be happening. My my primal brain is like, this is wrong. Get off the plane before you die. But right. I can I can step away from that and look at the data and say, no, this is actually safe. This is actually okay. And I think because I'm armed with all of this knowledge, as a lot of swingers are, not really to the degree that we are, but I mean like to the degree of understanding sexuality more so than most, they can realize that. It isn't a risk because of birth control and, you know, because they've really thought about these things, that their wife loves them and they aren't going to leave and they are more self-confident, knowing, especially for the men, that they're so wealthy and so educated that it's easy for them to find another mate. And it's really more of a challenge for their mate to leave them because it'd be harder for the woman to find another equally successful man, um, you know, in that regard. Now, the other thing that I've noticed in porn is I think that there's this, not porn, in swinging or just in the population more generally, is that there is this increasing trend in bisexuality. 
uh, among males. And I think what happens is you have a lot of men who identify as straight that are really bisexual, and they explore their bisexual curiosity, at least at first, by introducing a single guy into their relationship. So they tell themselves, oh, I want to watch my wife have sex with this guy. And they're attracted to watching that interaction with the wife, but they're also secretly mm. checking out the guy. And they're thinking, do I find this erotic? Do I, erotic? Do I find him attractive? Because I've met a lot of couples and have noticed a trend on the lifestyle where the couples now are identifying the males as bisexual. And I'm, I'm so straight. Like in every email I send, I'm like, I'm a thousand percent straight, nothing gay. No, I have to put that because it's so right. prevalent now. And the other day I emailed a couple and they responded back. We think you're hot. Here's a picture. By the way, we're 100% bisexual. And I just deleted the email. Right. Um, so I've noticed that a lot of it, to your specific question about the husbands and all that, has to do with a bisexuality or by curiosity component that they're checking out, which I avoid like the plague, not because I have anything against bisexual people, but just the public health data around what they call MSM or men who have sex with men activity. When you look at HIV transmission and all this kind of stuff, it is much, much more prevalent um, in that population than it is for straight, you know, non-African-American, non-intravenous drug users, uh, vaginal penetration uh, cohort. Right. Okay, so you're saying that there's a higher likelihood of, of an STI being carried by the woman because she is with a bisexual or, or you know, or a gay man, I guess, well... But, right, you know. and particularly like you know, I I, I just try to mit to to mitigate the risks where I can, and I find that it's easier for me to do that by having vaginal sex. You know, I don't even have anal sex with girls. I mean, I'm just I'm just not into that. Right. You know, and there's a, and there's actually I can send it to you. There's a uh, a data sheet of risk of HIV transmission by act, and it's like so. For example, if you have HIV in, infected blood, your chance in a blood transfusion, your chance of getting it is nine out of ten. But is you if you are a receptive anal partner. Of, of a male, it's like one in like 102 or something. And if you are a insertive vaginal partner, meaning me as a straight guy, insertive vaginal, if the girl has HIV, my probability of getting that is, is one out of 2,500. Right. So much, much, much lower. This is a known. So in other words, think of it like this. There's 365 days in the year, right? If, I, if there's a girl who I know to have HIV, she's infected with HIV, I would have to have sex with her for basically five years, you know, to have that one that one incident occurs. So it's, it's not, but again, if you're a public health message, you can't just sit there and go, okay, if you're this, do this. If you're this. I mean, you can't right, go right, to right. the public. You say, use condoms, be safe, limit partners, etc. Okay. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I, that is a fascinating topic to discuss, you know, um, rates of, of STI infection, but I do still want to kind of go back to this dynamic of, you know, rerouting our evolved sense of, 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 uh, you know, of, of, sexuality and then sexual behavior um so you you said that you know the reason why you know these guys and these women perhaps um are okay with swinging um is because they can kind of counteract or rewire i don't, know, I don't want to say rewire but they can um they kind can of take a step above. back they can rise they can above, above. Right. they they can use their kind of um prefrontal, you know, executive functions to over override uh, their more, you know, kind of uh, limbic systems, uh, you know, involved in, in, in jealousy and whatnot. Um, but, I mean, isn't there something more more to this? I mean, you mentioned that a lot of these guys are bisexual. Um, there was a study, and I think it was uh, by, by by Todd Shackelford, my, my former advisor, who I'll be interviewing tomorrow. Um, oh, by the way, I love Todd. Absolutely. Um, but, uh 
it was I think it was also Bill McKibben, um, but they looked at pornography sales records or sales rates, um, and they found that the highest selling porn uh, had you know multiple men on the cover and one woman. So you know, is it is it just that you can kind of counter like like you're basically you can make yourself um, ambivalent? Not ambivalent, but but apathetic to the prospect of your wife having sex with another man, or is this kind of um, dynamic, uh, which they posit is due to sperm competition? So basically, you know, if I know that my wife has had sex with someone else, so for example, there are studies showing that um, when a man and a woman who are who are in a relationship um, spend time apart, so they're 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 not together, but time apart, meaning that there's a higher likelihood that the woman strayed and, and had sex with someone else. Um, that the man is more likely to, I think, uh, I think it was ejaculate quicker when when he has sex with her next time. Uh, that he, that there is a, a higher um, sperm sperm count in his ejaculate. Uh, I, I don't know exactly the specifics, but something like that. Um, you know, perhaps he's more aroused or, or he becomes aroused uh, at a faster rate. Um, is there that uh, dynamic involved? So, so the guy doesn't have to be gay or, or, or bisexual necessarily, but it's just that in a way, yes, he's rewiring or, or kind of um, moderating his evolved sense in order to bring about pleasure, in order to – so I'm, I'm kind of using my evolved sense of jealousy – in order to actually, in the long run, heighten my sense of pleasure. Yeah, no, no I know what you're saying. I've, I'm familiar with all of those studies. Um, and it's funny, when I was uh, I was meeting with Gad Sad at, at Concordia in Montreal, and he asked me the same question that you asked about, you know, why why do these videos with all the guys on the girl sell more? And to me, the answer was quite obvious as a porn producer, which is just the production cost is much lower. You know, if I'm shooting a scene with one girl and ten guys, I'm paying the girl... 1500 i'm paying each guy 100 bucks right where if i reverse it and i shoot you know uh you know 10 girls with one guy i'm paying the guy 300 dollars, and each girl is still getting a thousand dollars it's a much more pricey scenario and it's also a lot more difficult to arrange a shoot like that meaning you got to coordinate all the guys i mean there's just more production involved so i think it really comes down to male's desire for variety and when you go on porn sites most of the porn you're going to see is just straight boy-girl stuff because that's the easiest to shoot, easiest to find. Um, and you can find all this other stuff you're talking about, but there's going to be, um, you know, the 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 production cost element and the uniqueness of having so many people on set, I think, is what drives the consumption of the gangbang stuff. And also just the male power thing, dominance over the woman, etc., um, I think is appealing uh, to many men. Um, you know, I'm not really a big, and I'm sure, you know, I'm not challenging sperm competition theory whatsoever, but and even our penises are shaped like shovels. So when we have sex, we can scoop out, you know, the other guy's semen and women are more likely to ejaculate and contract with a part, with their extra pair partner or partner that they're attracted to, making them more likely to get pregnant. So there's all this kind of stuff uh, going on. But I don't think the sperm competition thing has anything to do with the demand for multi-male porn. Because I would still mm. say that even if that were the case, that it would just be male porn in general. I mean, whether you're competing against 200 guys in some massive gangbang or one guy, I mean, the idea is still to scoop him out and, you know, get your sperm uh, in there. But well, everything you said is correct in terms of when guys leave their wives for an extended period of time, they come back, uh, they have more sperm motility, more sperm count, uh, more quickly to, to orgasm, to have sex right away. Um, 
all of that, but I don't know how much of that is just a, also just an involved. You know, if I said to you, you know, the longer I stay away from Applebee's, the more ravenous I am when I get there. It's like, well, no shit. If I haven't eaten in two days, I mean, I, re I really want to eat. Like, I'm not going to order more food. You know, versus somebody who's eating every day, then maybe they just get an appetizer or a salad that day. So I think it really has to do more with, with like like the Maslow hierarchy of needs, where sex and food is on the bottom needs level of the pyramid that if you're if you've been denied that let's say you're traveling for a week and you've been working and you come back you're like i need to get laid just like when you haven't eaten in two days you're like i gotta eat and i, and I say to you well maybe there's some other theory going on i'm like no the guy hasn't eaten in two days give the guy like a large pizza well but uh, in that particular study if i recall correctly they did kind of control for that you know just being you know so it, it wasn't just a difference of of not having sex versus having sex it was you know it was based on that whole being apart so if i am with my partner but i'm not having sex with her so say you know i'm i'm you know with my partner and i'm i'm with her for a week but we don't have sex sure i am st still no, I less I aroused than, than if i were True. just away for that week but, but there could be other things going on why are you not having sex with your partner maybe you're not attracted to her anymore so that's why you're not having sex with her. Maybe that's why you're sperm. I mean, there could be so many other elements going on. I mean, like, right. you know, there could be a guy just not having sex with his partner because he's just not into her anymore. He wants to get divorced. Maybe he has a mistress. He's cheating on her. Like, you okay. know, it's really hard to control for that stuff. And the thing is, is, you know, my my issue with a lot of this social science research, particularly in sexuality, is that most of it is, first of all, geared at undergraduate students because that's the main research pool for these people. So like 18 to 25 year olds. And then it's survey data. Would you do this? Would you do that? And once you start... Actually, look at all the behavioral studies that were done, like the, the, the Hatfield study at Florida State with the Confederates that went and asked, will you come back to my apartment? Will you go on a date? Um, will you have sex with me? Right? Um, right. And, or will you be a friend? Will you go on a date? Will you go back to my apartment and have sex with me? Complete inverse relationship between men and women. And the other behavioral one was the, there was the heat of the moment study that I cited in my book where you, you ask people on a survey, would you ever cheat? Would you, would you have sex with an old woman, a fat woman? Then they had to masturbate to arousal close to ejaculation, and then they answer the questions completely differently. Yes, I would have sex with the fat girl. Yes, I would have sex with the old woman. And all these IRB boards at these universities are not going to allow a researcher to be like, okay, hot girl, go approach this married guy in a bar and proposition him for a blowjob and see if he lets you do it. You know, they're not going to let you do that. So this is why I like more behavioral studies or even just looking at people directly in the swingers environment or in the porn environment because you have behavioral data. So I yeah. think you know a lot of this stuff – that you're talking about is more theoretical and, and could be tested empirically if we can get around a lot of these IRB board restrictions that prevent people from just, you know, why not allow a team of researchers to have sex with people? You know what I mean? Like, who cares if everybody's consenting? Um, you'd let them go out and have a drink with someone. You let them go out and play tennis with someone to do, you know, PE research. Why not do sexuality research and actually allow the girl to give the guy a blowjob and see if he, you know, does something or doesn't? Um, you know, so. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's a different topic of you know uh, how 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 can we um, you know expand the uh, horizons of, of, of behavioral research uh, to to you know um, explore human behavior in general, um, you know, for ethical reasons and whatnot. Um, but to answer I your, guess, your early question, I'm not sold on sperm competition theory yet, even though I know that's an emerging, you know, developing area of evolutionary psychology. I mean, I'm not a it, well, it, it is a contentious yeah. topic, um, and I, I know that there have been some studies showing that, you know, 
rates of paternity uh, or r- rates of extra uh, extra pair, you know, copulation where you know a child is actually produced are actually quite low compared to um, to what you know people would 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 expect. Uh, and that kind of goes against uh, sperm competition. But then, you know, there, there's other research showing that even with low rates of of out of wedlock births, say, uh, it's still possible that that there could be, you know, uh, adaptations on the part of men to sperm competition. Um, you know, for so for example, if you have uh, gorillas in comparison to ourselves and chimpanzees, so gorillas have the smallest testicles of all the great apes, I believe. I, I could be missing something i think that's the that's the uh, statistic uh chimpanzees have the have the have the largest uh and we're kind of in the middle meaning that men you know if we did evolve for sperm competition we would have large testicles to kind of beat out competitor semen in our partner's reproductive reproductive tracts but we don't have as great uh, a size of testicles as say chimpanzees do uh, but we also don't have um you know as small a size as, as as gorillas do meaning that across evolutionary history there was moderate amounts of sperm competition right but i mean the way i look at it there's sort of the fact and there's the theory right so the fact right. is is the primates that have external testicles and, and what you're talking about is the size of the testicle relative to the body mass not just the absolute size but as a percentage of body mass yes, and yes chimpanzees exactly. and bonobos have the highest and the lowest are the gibbons and the uh and uh whatever you said earlier i forget um Gor- gorillas. The gorillas well right. we're, we're talking about just the great apes Sure, but right. So within all of the great apes, so the you know, uh, in in humans, we're somewhere in between, but closer to the chimpanzees and the bonobos. So to me, that is a predictive uh, input on predicting promiscuity. Now, why that is, I really don't care. I just know that we have external testicles, and our and our testicles are are you know relatively decent to our body mass, not as much as bonobos and chimpanzees, but still to the point where we're more in that category, keeping in mind that we share 99% plus of our DNA with chimpanzees and bonobos, both of which are highly sexually promiscuous species, that, it, that it, there's really no question in my mind from a, from a primatology perspective that humans have not evolved from monogamy at all, that it's actually counterproductive. Um, but I think, you know, I think an important thing is really... Um, what can we do in the, in the real scenario? The real What's the problem with relationship today? And, and I think the problem, honestly, is just false expectations. You have guys that watch porn all day long, and they want their girlfriends to bring their friends and have orgies and let them come on their face. And the girl's like, that's disgusting. And then a friend of mine just went to watch Fifty Shades Grey or whatever just came out. She said the entire theater was women. And why? Yeah. Because you got the rich, successful, socially dominant guy that only wants to be with her. Yep. He just wants to be with her. It's, it's equally fantasy for the woman and this is why all guys watch porn and all girls watch this bullshit and why instead of just peddling lies why don't we just say listen it's like that like don simons posited in the evolution of human sexuality you know we have different needs and instead of trying to fantasize the other person to be what it is just allow people to have a relationship where men can experience what they want sexual variety and women we know they they're hurt by it so we you know we just don't disclose it so we do our best not to disclose it and women can seek out uh, sex with you know high value mates that they value and have recurring emotional relationships with, and everybody can be happy. You know, what I mean, and I talk about that in my book. You know, we, we live in a in a society where the social norm favors evolved female preferences, which is monogamy, don't cheat, etc. And if I say to a girl, generally speaking, just at a ran, random bar at random, hey, I want to have sex with other girls, let's have an open relationship. I'm the first guy to get kicked to the curb. 
But imagine that you reverse the gender roles and everybody in society had an open relationship. That was the norm. And then some girl says to me on Tinder, hey, uh, listen, I know traditionally guys you know, bang all these girls, but I'm only interested in monogamy. Uh, she would be the first girl to discard. I'm like, what the hell? What is she talking about? Like, who does monogamy? You know, everybody is doing non-monogamy. So, but the only thing is, is it's easy to fake monogamy. You can't fake non-monogamy. You know, a girl can't show up at a swingers club and not do anything. You know, she, you're going to see it. But a guy can easily fake monogamy and say, oh, no, I'm totally monogamous. I would never cheat. I mean, look at John Edwards, Mr. Family Values guy campaigning yeah. on Family Values platform for president. Has a, a kid with a mistress, you know, um, outside of his wife. Newt Gingrich tries to impeach Bill Clinton for a blowjob. He's had cheated on every wife he's ever had. Elliot Spitzer tries to outlaw prostitution in New York while patronizing a prostitute at the same time. Why right. isn't Madeleine Albright, Condoleezza Rice, Hillary Clinton, why are they not being caught with their male interns? You know, they're not because they're women, they're men. People need to get away from this we're the same garbage and realize that there are differences. We have the evolved explanations that have been peer-reviewed exhaustively of why this is the case. Buss, Schmidt, uh, Simons, etc. And just, you know, start educating people. Because I think a lot of women aren't really opposed to all this stuff. They just feel that there are guys that are a certain way and there are other guys that aren't, which is bullshit. There are guys that lie and there are guys that don't lie. And women like to be told what they Okay. Doing. Well, um, I think this has been kind of our argument um, in perpetuity where you know you say that all men cheat. Okay. I think um, men are as faithful as their options, and I equate it to a job. There are, if you want to make a lot of money, you're, you're, it's very good to go in the sales. And the people who do well in sales are outgoing. They're generally charismatic. They have, you know, a nice appearance. They're 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 socially dominant. Now you take a guy that's meek and put him in sales. He's not going to do very well. So he's going to take a regular corporate job and make probably a lot less. So I think there's a lot of men who rationalize their monogamy and say, no, 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 I I, I like being monogamous. I choose to be monogamous. And I would argue that if those men were tall personable, confident, socially dominant with resources, etc. more women would be coming on to them. They would have, they would realize their value and their opportunity and they okay. wouldn't succumb to monogamy in the same way a sales guy wouldn't succumb to a $40,000 a year. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm willing to, to, to agree that a lot of guys don't cheat because they don't have the opportunity. They're not, right. you know, of a high social status. Uh, they're not tall enough. They're not attractive enough. They don't have, you know, such good genes. I agree with you. Uh, I think that you know, you know, given the men who are currently monogamous, if you raise their social status, um, if you make their perhaps partners be more accepting of open relationships, yeah, they would probably go 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 on and cheat. But still, you don't think that there are some men, and you know, so let's let's take you know a movie star. Yeah, you know, we can agree that perhaps all movie stars, all male movie stars, uh, perhaps are more likely to, to to commit infidelity. But still, male movie stars, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, but you know, still, like you can't and you, you like, do you deny that there are some you know high status guys, good looking guys who 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 don't cheat, even if they have the opportunity, they just don't do it. You don't think that there are any guys like that? No, and I'll tell you why. For the women who are listening to this podcast. For your mom, who's listening to this podcast. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's right. <laughs> the, um, I, I say to women, when they say that same argument to me, I'm like, let me ask you a question. I reverse the role on you. And I say, you know what, Greg, I realize that women like monogamy. I realize that they want resource investment. But I know there's a girl somewhere that wants to let me fuck all her friends and come on her face. And I don't have to spend any money on her. I don't have to have a job I can sit at home. 
I mean, don't you think there's some girls like that? I mean, I realize, oh, there's a girl who's, like, super hot, and she wants ambition, and she wants this. But there's got to be a girl somewhere who just doesn't give a shit if I sit on the couch and have no ambition and just do nothing. And uh, and she'll let me come on her face and have sex with all her friends. I'm like, no, that girl does not exist. I mean, you know, and if she does, she's such an outlier that she would be kicked out of the population. Just like, you know, flights, right? There's 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 tens of thousands of flights every day. You hear about a plane crash every month. You know, the, the ratio of plane crashes is so small that a plane crash is an outlier and isn't really something to be concerned about. So, you know, to me, the monogamous male, theoretically, that you described, that's high social status, resources, desirable, um, is as rare as that plane crash. The only problem is, is every woman thinks she's dating him, which is statistically impossible. If I take 100 people in a population at random, split them in, you know, couples, split them in the males and females, and I ask those women, do you think most men cheat? I think most women would agree that most men cheat. That means of those 50 men that are attached to the 50 women, at least half are cheating. And if I followed up the question and said, do you think your husband's cheating? They would all say no, unless they were known swingers. So by definition, half of them are wrong or are being misled. And that's what gets back to earlier about why the social, you know, efficient market theory. Why is the dating market what it is today? Because it's easy to fake monogamy. You can't fake, the girl can't fake not having sex, Right. Or the girl can't fake polygamy she, or uh, uh, promiscuity. Yeah, yeah, I banged, I banged Greg last weekend, Dave. Aren't you excited? Greg, did you bang her? No, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like, it, it's verifiable that she that she is not – It's verifi- you can verify that she's being promiscuous or not being promiscuous. You can't verify monogamy, which is obvious in every high social uh, status guy. And even if you look at the South Park episode, season 14, episode 1, the Tiger Woods, it was called Sexual Healing. They did a great job. You know, they're in sexual addiction training. I'm like, why are you guys all here? Because you got caught. You're all here because you got caught, right? And they yeah. talk about, like, why are all these rich, successful men having sex with all these attractive women? And it's just such a great, uh, you know, satire on on the state of relationships and monogamy. And I don't think we have to bullshit. I think women are willing to understand as long as there's an education component and they can understand the theory, which is why I'm a big fan of making evolutionary psychology a required course, uh, not only in college, but in high school. And I can't believe a lot of psych programs, they get a degree in psych, don't even require evolutionary psychology as part of the core curriculum. Just an elective, which I think is is an injustice to science. Okay, so one more kind of um, attack, not uh, not an attack, but you know, one more, say, critique of that point of view. Um, you agree that we can counteract our evolved jealousy, okay? So a man can kind of take a step back uh, and use his executive function to kind of counteract his sexual jealousy, okay? Mm-hmm. So you know, assuming that we're not a completely, you know polygamous species as say you know chimpanzees are okay um you know and you know obviously and we're not completely monogamous as as you know um you know gibbons are even though i'm pretty sure that there's some exceptions with respect to, to gibbons um you know can't we do the same thing for things like um you know polygamy so other than you know men who are you know just by their status in life are doomed to, to remain monogamous because, you know, they have no other options. But, you know, can't you make the other argument? I'm not saying that people should make this other, other argument, but can't a man say to himself, you know, I agree, you know, I agree that I have the potential, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm attractive, I'm rich. Sure. No, I understand the question. I have, 
so, so you know, but 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 because but because of of whatever reason, you know, I I want to devote myself more to I don't know, like book learning or whatever. Or I um you know my my wife might say that she's okay with me sleeping around, but I still don't want to do that to her. Um, and so can't I still um use that executive function, use that power to kind of counteract my my evolutionary nature and and be monogamous, kind of make myself monogamous. Sure, you could, but there's no reason to. So here's 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 another analogy. So yeah, first of all, I think a lot of this opposition to uh, promiscuity comes from religion. I think religion poisons society basically. But let's take another example of eating. Let's say there's a line in the Bible that says, "Thou shalt eat once per day." Okay. So you see these people sneaking off and like eating nuts in the back or running off to the tree and like why are these people eating and they're losing their jobs because they're not following the social convention of eating once a day. And then all this science comes out and says, you know, you should maintain your calories throughout the day. You should eat like, you know, five to seven small meals and all this kind of stuff. And we're on this podcast talking about why that is and how the body metabolizes food and carbs and, you know, sugars and all this kind of stuff. And then you say, all right, Dave, I get all this science, you know, you know this makes sense. You know, I don't disagree with you. You know, but listen, I mean, you know, that shall eat one time a day. I mean, can't we just rise above that and realize that, yes, we're hungry, but just just wait another 12 hours, you know, and then just gorge. I mean, can't you do that? I mean, yeah, you could, but I would question the premise. Why are we eating once a day? Why are we not more sexually promiscuous like bonobos and chimpanzees, even though we share over 99% of our genetics with, with, with that, with, with, with them? And I think a lot of it has to do with with religion. And, and a lot of that comes with, you know, back in the day when, when the birth control wasn't available, there was a consequence. When women couldn't work, if they were pregnant, nobody would date them. They'd be living with their families at home. So you have this ingrained cultural uh, bullshit, basically, that hasn't caught up with uh, the times, uh, which I think is act, is causing people to act against their evolved nature for uh, partner variety. Now, the other question is, is, or the other answer to that is that it doesn't matter if you're cheating. And I talk about this in the book with the poison analogy, okay? If I shoot someone in the head, they're dead. The bullet killed them, right? So if I, if I, for sake of argument, if I say to you, Greg, I'm poisoning your Cheerios, do you mind? And you're like, no, no problem. You eat the Cheerios and you die. So you're aware that I poisoned the Cheerios and you died. But you didn't die because of the awareness. You died because of the poison. Or conversely, if I tell you, Greg, I'm not poisoning your Cheerios. Believe me, I'm not poisoning them. And I poison them, you're going to die. Even though you believe you weren't being poisoned, the poison is the agent that killed you. And conversely, if I tell you that I am poisoning your Cheerios and you agree to eat them, but I actually don't poison them, but you believe you're being poisoned and you're like, why haven't I died yet? And the reason you haven't died is the agent of poison hasn't killed you. Now, invert that with monogamy. Okay, It's the belief of monogamy, or I should say of non-monogamy, that hurts the girl. If I'm married to a woman and I'm cheating on her every single day with a different girl, and she has no clue, I'm just getting a different prostitute at lunch. I'm like, oh, I have lunch meetings every day, blah, blah, blah. And she believes that. My penis entering another vagina does not affect the status of our relationship one bit. It's not like the poison. And conversely, so we can be happily married forever even though I've never been monogamous. Or conversely, if I tell her that I cheated, honey, I have a confession. I've had sex with about 300 girls since we met three years ago. But I never cheated ever. I was monogamous the whole time. My penis never entered another vagina. She would cry and probably end the relationship, even though no fidel infidelity occurred. Her, her uh, reaction is based on her perception. Unlike the poison, where the perception didn't matter, was the agent. It's not about not cheating. <laughs> it's about the woman not finding out. And the only reason that she doesn't want to find out is because she's not educated. I think once women educate are educated about male sexuality and familiarize themselves with, you know, primatology, 
you know, the evolutionary theories for why men and women act the way they do, all of a sudden they really don't care. And I've had this conversation with many women, and eventually they get it. They're like, I don't want to know. And, you know, and, and I know if I find out just like the jealousy, it's going to bother me and I'll break up with them. And they'll, they will proactively not snoop. When, when their boyfriend's phone rings, they, they know they're smart enough not to look at the phone. Because when they look, they're never going to like what they're going to find, at least if they're dating a high-status, high-value mate who has other options. So to answer your question, I don't think it's necessary. I think it makes no sense um, because it goes against our biology and because the cheating doesn't matter. What, what's it, what, what matters and what happens today in most relationships is the woman's just unaware. And she's unaware because we're sold these biased media, whether it's women through romance novels or Fifty Shades of Grey or men through pornography – that women are this sexual or men are this monogamous, neither of which are true, um, and that there's and there's an honest way around it if people just educate themselves and get away from the religious bullshit that I think hinders progress in relationships. It's all about setting realistic expectations. And by the way, this is a great time to plug my book. If you read my book, Obscene Thoughts, a pornographer, absolutely, a pornographer's perspective on sex and dating. Again, Obscene Thoughts, a pornographer's perspective on sex and dating, which you can get at obscenethoughts.com, O-B-S-C-E-N-E, thoughts.com, also on Amazon. Um, you know, you can see, I mean, let's do it. I got a shitload of reviews. I got like, you know, I think a four-star rating is pretty good. I think, I, I think I'm doing better than Townsend's book. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it won a... Uh, well, the subject doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it won an award at the American Library Association Conference yeah. in 2013 for the nonfiction um, psychology category. And yeah. uh, it's been an Amazon bestseller twice. And uh, read it. I mean, you know, there's a lot of analogies. Take what you will. Agree with it. Don't agree with it. But uh, I think the, the key challenge now is setting realistic expectations among men and women so people don't get um, upset, you know. Uh yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think people are undereducated on, you know, biology, on uh, human evolution, and I think that does cause a lot of uh, miscommunication because men can't understand women's psychology and women can't understand men's psychology. Uh, the only thing that I would kind of, you know, take issue with is, is the, you know, I, to a certain level. I, I, I agree with you that we can kind of navigate human relationships better if we understand uh, our mutual sexual psychology. Uh, I, I agree with you. Um, but, you know, and I'm not one of those, you know, pearl-clutching individuals who, who is saying that, you know, we should totally, you know, avoid uh, any kind of relationship other than a monogamous relationship. But, you know, going back to your, you know, view that, Things like monogamy, things like um, like fidelity. Well, that's all due to religion. It's just you know religious uh, you know holdovers from our past. It's not entirely due to religion. So, for sure. example, you know you mentioned um, uh, uh, you know you mentioned the 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 effect of religion uh, on on things like like um, straying and how you know religion says you know don't don't do this and so you don't do that. Um, but People embrace religion for sexual reasons. So research by um, by, by Kurzban and, and others shows that it is sexual strategies that drive uh, our embracing of religion. So you know, if we are more monogamy prone, we tend to gravitate toward religion, specifically if our parents are religious, and so we are more likely to also be religious um, if we are monogamous, uh, because that religion helps us to to do other things. It helps us to cement community ties with other monogamous people. It helps us to make sure that our mates don't stray, uh, which, you know, 
helps both men and women. So it helps me if I'm a husband to make sure that my wife doesn't stray and it helps my wife to make sure that, that I don't stray. Um, so there are methods to the madness, even though I would agree with you that, um, you know, there are better ways than say limiting, limiting our evolved nature, uh, to, to an extent that it could be, um, you know, detrimental to our happiness and well-being. Um, so that's the only thing that I would add. Yeah, well, I think the religion is more really the, the social side is, you know, I, not only the religion, but just, you know, monogamy is within a female's evolved sexual preferences. Uh, but I think the reason that society moved to the, to the female side is because historically, you know, if, if we had done, if we embraced promiscuity, then women who couldn't work at the time wouldn't be able to find a mate because they'd have three kids and no guy wants to support, you know, the rival male's offspring at that time. Um, so it made sense basically to have that sexual norms, social norms at that time. But now it's time to change that. The only problem is, is back when the Bible and these other religious texts were written, we didn't have birth control. Um, so it's a whole, uh, it's a whole nother thing. And, and one more thing regarding expectations is I talk about this in the book as well. You know, if you order pizza on Monday and they tell you the pizza is going to be there in 30 minutes and it comes in 15, you're happy. Like, oh shit, pizza's here. Great. The next day you order, they tell you it's coming in 30 minutes. You're hungry. It comes in an hour. You're pissed. In both scenarios, oh, I'm sorry, no, I, I, I said it wrong. You know, the first time they tell you it's going to come in in an hour, it comes in 30 minutes, you're happy because it came early. Then yeah. they tell you it'll be there in 10 minutes, it comes in 30 minutes, you're pissed. Right. Be the scenario that came in 30 minutes. And you're, it has nothing to do with the time it was arrived. It has to do with your right. expectation, your perception. So I think if women familiarize themselves with the literature and realize, oh, shit, yeah, my guy's probably going to cheat. And often if he's a wealthy guy, and she goes... Wow, he only cheated on me three times in 30 years. He's pretty damn good. He's good versus the girl who's super religious and says, that asshole cheated on me three times in 30 years? Yeah. Because her yeah. expectation was complete fidelity and monogamy. And the other person's was, shit, I understand psychology and evolved mating preferences, and I'm surprised it was only three times. So the same three makes one girl pissed and one girl right, happy right. based on her expectation, and it's all about setting the expectation level. And I think that's the problem with relationships today and why we do – podcasts like this and and hopefully the field of evolutionary psychology keeps growing not just in mating but in kin selection and mutual reciprocity right. so people no, can I, understand I, how everything works i hope so too so basically you're saying that um regardless of how you know prone we are to say monogamy versus you know promiscuity even if people are more prone to say just you know committing to one partner because there is still that chance that a person um, would be attracted to other people, whether you know you're talking about a man or a woman. That it's better to have realistic expectations. It's better to to understand our psychology. It's better to understand our sexual behavior because we are less likely to to be upset when 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 um, partners do stray. True. What people don't understand is biology always trumps sociology. So I, I joke with my friends. You know, they'll say, "Oh, you know, I could never date a guy and be in an open relationship." And I said. Every guy you date, you're in an open relationship with. It's just whether you're aware of it or not. <laughs> That's really the difference. Well, I think we're we're always going to be um, arguing about you know whether people are capable of of, of ensuring their monogamous commitments. Um, but let's just leave it at that. I think we had a really good talk as usual. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. And you mentioned your website, so I don't think there's any reason for you to plug it again unless you want to plug it again. Sure, I'll uh, plug a couple. ObsceneThoughts.com is the book. Risky Business, the movie, is my documentary about the adult film industry. And DavePounder.com or PornographyExpert.com is my bio page <coughs> where you can learn more about my background and watch some interesting links from other, other evolutionary psychologists and authors about human mating and the science behind uh, human uh, sexuality. Thank you, Dave Pounder. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it.
All right. All right. Take care, buddy. You too. All right.